Welcome back to Then Again. This is Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. And today we have with us Dr. Catherine Rohr from the University of North Georgia. And we are going to be talking about the women's suffrage movement, specifically what it looked like in the South and Georgia. So thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Rohr. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, who may be unfamiliar with the women's suffrage movement in general, could you give a brief overview before we dive into the movement, uh, what what the movement specifically looked like in Georgia and the South? Can you just give us a nice big overview? Uh, Sure, let me uh, speak for a few minutes on that. In very broad terms, uh, women's suffrage refers to the decades-long fight to win the right to vote for women in the United States during really the second half of the 19th century into the first two decades of the 20th. And just a little bit of background or context here, we go all the way back to the founding of this nation in the 1780s. Want to make it clear to our listeners that delegates at the Constitutional Convention back in Philadelphia in the summer of 1788 did not remotely address the political role that women would play in the new nation. And so between the Constitutional Convention and the Civil War, uh, women are beginning to assume more public roles, at least in limited situations. The Second Great Awakening, which referred to a major religious revival that transpired during the early 19th century, spawned a number of reform movements. And the two biggest reform movements of this era included abolitionism and temperance. And I want to stress that women are very active in these new movements. They discovered that they possessed the intellect as well as the oral, written, organizational, and leadership skills necessary to thrive in arenas outside the home. And so some women are beginning to toy with the idea that their ideas, that their opinions should be reflected in the political arena. Okay, the next major event that we want to cover for our listeners here is something called the Seneca Falls Convention. And so the demand for women's suffrage begins to gather strength in the 1840s. It's emerging from the broader movement for women's rights, which more broadly included women's property rights, and access to education. And so in the year 1848, the Seneca Falls Convention, it's called the Seneca Falls Convention because it took place in Seneca Falls, New York. It was there where we see the first women's rights convention in the United States. And it was there that they passed a revolution, excuse me, resolution in favor of women's suffrage despite opposition from some of its organizers who actually back then believed the idea of women's suffrage was simply too extreme. So I wanna stress that it is the Seneca Falls Convention that ignites a truly national movement, but at the same time that support for women's suffrage is really gonna be centered in the North and the West and not so much in the South. And so now let me sort of give a sense for our our listeners what's happening between the Civil War and the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Okay, so let's take ourselves to after the Civil War. An organization called the American Equal Rights Association, AERA, ERA, 
formed in 1866, and ERA is dedicated to human rights, Black suffrage, and women's suffrage. That organization is going to be pretty short-lived because in 1869, ERA uh, is going to split into two factions, the American Women's Suffrage Association, known as the AWSA, and the National Women's Suffrage Association, known as the NWSA. So why do we have this split? Well, one suffrage leader in particular, Susan B. Anthony, argues that the 15th Amendment, which is a constitutional amendment that ultimately granted voting rights to Black men, that the 15th Amendment should be, that should the 15th Amendment be rejected, that, excuse me, uh, let me rephrase that, Susan B. Anthony argues that the 15th Amendment should be rejected, actually, should women not also gain suffrage. Okay, so we have these two groups here, the AWSA versus the NWSA. And so the AWSA is going to function as a pretty moderate group led by such suffrage leaders as Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe. Whereas in contrast, the NWSA is going to be a far more radical faction formed by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And so let me look at the sort of tactical differences between the AWSA and the NWSA. Okay, the AWSA seeks to accomplish a state-by-state right to vote. In contrast, the NWSA seeks a constitutional amendment for the vote and work for a variety of reforms. Okay, enough state legislatures ratified the 15th Amendment in 1870. The belief that women also deserve voting rights not only increased membership in both the AWSA and NWSA, but also led to increased tensions among women's suffrage leaders over how to best achieve women's voting rights. Okay, so these two groups are functioning reasonably independently for a few decades. Our listeners need to realize that the AWSA and the NWSA are going to reunite in 1890 into a group known as the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, N-A-W-S-A. And so between 1890 and 1920, NASA valiantly continues to fight for women's suffrage. By the later 1890s, NASA was the largest voluntary organization in the United States. NASA, between 1890 and 1920, did, however, witness quite a bit of factionalism, and just as had been the case decades earlier, leaders were not always united in terms of ideology and especially tactic. Nonetheless, we will see some triumph. The 19th Amendment will be ratified by three-quarters of the state legislatures. That will happen in August of 1920, and the 19th Amendment, of course, guarantees women's right to vote. So that should be a, a fairly comprehensive overview for our listeners. That was fantastic. So we have a very nice framework now to dive into what, what was going on in the South. So what did the suffrage movement look like in Georgia specifically? Because you were saying 
it was really centered in the Northeast and the West. In the South, what, what was going on there? Was anything going on there? Okay, I'm happy to, to expound on that. Really bottom line for our listeners here, there is very, very little demonstrated interest in women's suffrage in Georgia before the year 1890. So let me consider the women's movement and women's suffrage chronology in Georgia really between 1890 and 1920. Okay, even though there's little interest, let me first identify why there is at least some limited interest. So what are some pro-suffrage arguments that women and their allies in Georgia are making? Okay, we really see an overarching theme here. Women in Georgia wanted to further clean up and reform society. They saw themselves as valuable workers within the larger progressive movement, and such women thus see suffrage as a public extension of their private or feminine roles. As potential voters, women from Georgia thus felt that they'd be now in a better position to tackle such issues related to them, things like temperance, child labor, public health, day nurseries, prenatal care, penal reform, and race relations. A lot of these issues had been ignored by men. Likewise, pro-suffrage women in Georgia are going to make the argument that with women's vote, maybe we could now end prostitution. Likewise, if women had the right to vote, maybe we could raise the age of consent. Or finally, if women had the right to vote, maybe this would lead to more legislation that protected children. Okay, so that's a little background on the pro-suffrage arguments among women in Georgia. Let's take a look at the chronology of women's suffrage in Georgia again from 1890 to 1920. So let me start in 1890. It will be in that year that Helen Augusta Howard forms a branch in NASA that's going to be in Columbus, Georgia, and she names that branch the Georgia Women's Suffrage Association, known as the GWSA. I know there are a lot of acronyms here. In 1892, NASA established the Committee on Southern Work. This committee was devoted to increasing interest in women's suffrage in the South. So we see a national organization taking a very proactive measure to really recruit women in the South to join their cause. So I I can't emphasize enough the extent to which that was vital in really creating a larger, truly national movement. Okay, so how popular was NASA in Georgia? Well, by 1893, the Georgia chapter of NASA had members in five counties, so still pretty limited, and those are going to be mostly urban counties, you know, near Atlanta, Macon, Savannah, uh, very little interest really in the very rural areas of the state. But we're seeing continuing momentum. By 1894, we see another organization form called the Equal Suffrage League in Atlanta. Okay, in 1895, We see Georgia put on the map of the women's suffrage movement because NASA, the national organization, decides to hold their annual meeting in Atlanta. This is the first time that the meeting has been held outside of Washington, D.C. 
And so it's quite the shindig. Susan B. Anthony will be present, as well as 93 delegates from 28 states. Okay, and again, that's going to be held in Atlanta. Likewise, in Atlanta in 1899, the GWSA is going to start holding conventions there. And at that first meeting, uh, that first convention for the GWSA in Atlanta in 1899, they're going to pass several resolutions. Okay, and these are going to include one, a statement that Georgia women should not pay taxes if they did not have the vote. And secondly, they're going to make a request that the University of Georgia be open to women. Okay, is anything going to come of that? Not immediately, but again, we're, we're seeing some increased momentum here. So let's take ourselves into the early 20th century, 1902. Atlanta women are going to petition to vote in municipal elections, not state or national, but municipal elections. But this is going to be rejected. Taking ourselves in to the next decade, 1913, we see another women's suffrage organization founded in Georgia. It's called the Georgia Woman Equal Suffrage League. In 1914, we're going to see the Equal Suffrage Party of Georgia founded and organizers of the Equal Suffrage Party of Georgia felt that the GWSA was not aggressive enough. By 1915, the Equal Suffrage Party of Georgia had member branches in 13 Georgia counties. Several Georgia cities and counties had branches of both suffrage organizations, the GWSA, and the Equal Suffrage Party of Georgia, working simultaneously for that same goal of women's suffrage, but with a different focus and with different tactics. Okay, moving closer to 1919. In 1914 also, we see pro-suffrage women holding their first major rally in Atlanta, and they're going to recruit a reputable speaker, Jane Adams, the uh, famous progressive leader, as their speaker. In 1917, as the national movement is becoming more radical, we're going to see a woman by the name of Alice Paul forming the National Women's Party, the NWP. And the NWP, I want to stress, is not going to be popular in Georgia and the rest of the South. In particular, Alice Paul and the NWP very much reject uh, sitting President Woodrow Wilson and specifically his lack of support for a federal suffrage amendment. And Wilson, as we know, was a Southerner, a proud Southern Democrat, a pretty popular figure in Georgia and the South. And so consequently, the NWP, this more radical party, is going to gain uh, actually little traction in Georgia and the rest of the South. So let's take ourselves now to 1919. Okay. Women are granted the right to vote in Atlanta municipal primary elections. So this is before the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Also going on in 1919, uh, Congress, uh, the United States Congress, is debating women's suffrage. And so it will be in June of 1919 that the U.S. Congress passes the Women's Suffrage Amendment, and I want to make it uh, actually just sort of identify that there was only one Southern senator who is going to support 
the women's suffrage amendment. And that is actually a senator from Georgia, uh, William J. Harris. So once Congress passed the women's suffrage amendment, it means that it was going to be submitted to the states for ratification. Unfortunately, even though we had William J. Harris supporting women's suffrage, the state of Georgia very, very quickly rejects the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Uh, It will be only about five, six weeks after the U.S. Congress sent the bill out to the states that the Georgia Assembly will reject the 19th Amendment. That said, you know, even though Georgia rejects the 19th Amendment, by August of 1920, we're going to see the 19th Amendment ratified. And ironically, the state that is needed for full ratification of the 19th Amendment is a Southern state. It is our neighbor, Tennessee. So we should uh, give them props for that. And just sort of a fun fact for you, did Georgia ever ratify the 19th Amendment? Well, I guess it's better late than never. The Georgia Assembly officially ratified and approved the 19th Amendment in 1970. So it only took literally 50 years later. Well, at least they did it at some point. (laughs) Yeah, better late than never. Oh, wow. So it seems like Georgia perhaps, there there was interest in Georgia for the women's suffrage movement. As you you said, there, there were definitely groups specifically starting in the 1890s. So again, a little bit later than the rest of the country coming into that, but they're definitely there. But there, Georgia, I guess, was not one of the states well known for its support of women's suffrage. In fact, it had one of the largest anti-suffrage movements. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, the anti-suffrage movement specifically in Georgia and how that kind of compared to the, the pro suffrage movement? Sure. So as we know, Georgia very quickly rejected the 19th Amendment. And so why was that the case? Georgia, and really we have to place them within a larger regional southern context, was just more socially conservative than its northern and western counterparts. The South possessed a longstanding conservative race, class, and gender hierarchy. Southerners are definitely uncomfortable with change at this time, but they're particularly uncomfortable with change that's going to disrupt this conservative hierarchy that has really defined their state and region since the 18th century. So let's look at some common anti-suffrage arguments that are being voiced during this time. Number one, and this sort of ties back to, to my immediate last point, and that is that suffrage threatens the traditional Southern way of life, specifically the idea of the dependent female. And so it doesn't help that during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Southern Bell is being idolized again as part of the lost cause. So women's suffrage is very much seen at odds with that. Okay, let's look at a second anti-women's suffrage argument. And scholars refer to it as Negrophobia. And so opponents claim that votes for women meant black uh, votes for black women, a group that whites, both men and women, wanted to keep strictly disfranchised. And a third anti-suffrage argument being voiced by Georgians and those across the South 
is that women suffragists, those who are working for women's suffrage, were seen as traitors to the region and the lost cause. They saw women's suffrage as just not relevant to their region. They perceived it as a Northern and Western issue, not a Southern one. And so the question then arises, do we have women mobilizing, forming organizations from the anti-suffrage perspective? And the answer to that question is yes. Specifically in 1914, a Georgia chapter of the National Association opposed to women's suffrage was founded in 1895, uh, specifically in Macon. And so by the end of 1895, the National Association opposed to women's suffrage claimed to have 10 state branches and 2,000 members. And I want to stress that that's far more than did the pro-suffrage organizations. I don't have exact figures here, but in terms of those who identified as anti-suffrage versus pro-suffrage, it was likely as high as 75% anti and maybe 20 to 25% pro. And again, those women are going to be centered uh, more in urban areas and tend to be well-educated. But that said, we still have some well-educated urban women in Georgia who are very strongly adhering to the anti-suffrage arguments. One woman in particular, someone from Athens, Georgia, Mildred Lewis Rutherford, who was actually president of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and who was principal of the Lucy Cobb Institute of Female Finishing School in Athens, was one of the state's most vocal anti-suffrage activists. Okay. And in addition to uh, the National Association opposed to women's suffrage, I want to make it clear that the United Daughters of the Confederacy and other conservative heritage organizations to which Georgia women belonged likewise did all they could to try to discredit women's suffrage. So some of the things that the pro-suffrage people did was have rallies and speeches and get-togethers where they talked about the cause of suffrage and how they were going to achieve that. Did the anti-suffrage movement basically do the same thing? Did they have protests in support of anti-suffrage and meetings and speeches as well? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And ironically, their tactics were quite similar. The leaders of both sides of the pro-suffrage and anti-suffrage They tend to be well-educated, middle and elite white Southern women who are coming out of similar backgrounds. So their tactics really aren't all that different. They just happen to be on very different sides of the spectrum. One of the things I think is so interesting is, especially Mildred Rutherford, is one of her kind of talking points is that women's place is in the home because there's still this cult of domesticity vibe from the Victorian carrying over into early 1900s. And she's saying, you know, women's places in the home and politics is no place for women and suffrage is just going to get women out of the home and disrupt all of society. But at the same time, she is outside of the home doing politics just in an anti way, which I just think is incredibly amusing. Exactly. And that's one of the fascinating sort of characteristics of of Mildred Lewis Rutherford to give a more modern example. She's sort of like Phyllis Schlafly during the 1970s, who is a very well-educated, Harvard-educated 
lawyer who is very public about trying to persuade the uh, public and specifically state legislatures to vote down the Equal Rights Amendment. So how did the suffrage movement or perhaps the anti-suffrage movement in the Southeast compare to other regional suffrage movements? We've talked a little bit about this, but in terms of pro-suffrage, that there was far more centered in the Northeast and the West. But also, how does that work for the anti-suffrage movement, which seems to be bigger in the South? Was there still an anti-suffrage component to the Northeast and West? Sure. So just to make it crystal clear here, there's, you know, stepping outside of Georgia, but looking at it South-wide, there's just going to be far less interest in women's suffrage than in the other two, than in the uh, West and uh, Northeast regions of the United States. We've talked about that in Georgia, but really the Deep South, that, you know, this conservative race, class and gender hierarchy is most rigid, that there's just particular disdain for women's suffrage. And so I want to make it clear to our listeners that all the deep South states, so we're talking places like South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, that sort of stretch there, all of those deep South states did reject the 19th Amendment. In contrast, several states and territories recognized women's suffrage rights before, even long before the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. And so Wyoming, ironically, is the first state that grants women the right to vote, actually before it was even a state, in 1869. And for our listeners, many other Western states, including Utah, Colorado, Idaho, Washington, and half a dozen others, were states that granted women voting rights long before the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So the question that really arises here is how and why was the women's suffrage movement different in the Northeast and West? And so in the Northeast, you know, we have a population that's much more densely populated. There's just simply more opportunity for women to congregate and share ideas about women's role in society and women's suffrage. Likewise, more women in the Northeast are going to possess college educations and had at least for a time worked outside of the home. They led in comparison to their Southern counterparts more independent lives and wanted to see that independence transitioning into women, to them having the right to vote. Okay, so how how does the West fit in here? The West, really in contrast to both the Northeast and South, is defined by a more egalitarian culture. Western women are leading on average very physically rigorous lives as the wives of farmers, ranchers, and miners. Their contributions to the household are crucial and men accepted this and many believed that women had earned a political voice. Contributing to this was the fact that during the late 19th century, some areas of the West had a very unequal sex ratio, meaning that there were far more men than women. And so actually as a means to recruit women to move out West to states like Wyoming, the state legislatures there decided to grant women voting rights very early. 
And so I remember you asking a question about were there anti-suffrage organizations in the Northeast and West? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. There appears to be less activity out West. That's probably not surprising given that the populations are pretty dispersed out there, pretty rural. But you do have some pretty vocal anti-suffrage organizations in the Northeast. And it wasn't always a given that every Northeastern state was even going to ratify the 19th Amendment. But certainly the leadership for the broader women's suffrage movement is going to borrow very heavily from the Northeast. So could you almost say that perhaps this suffrage movement, it seems like a lot of it for the anti-suffrage movement, at least in the South, is also kind of rooted in this mythical Southern Belle lost cause, daughter of the Confederacy classes, and and people who are supporting that also kind of support anti-suffrage to generalize a little bit. Is this almost like a carryover of the Civil War, in a sense, or is that perhaps going a little yeah, bit? Yeah, certainly too far? a carryover of the antebellum era. I, I can't emphasize enough the extent to which the anti-suffrage Arguments that are coming out of the South are deeply rooted in the Lost Cause movement, this movement to glorify the Old South, the antebellum South, and make that civilization one that was predicated on a conservative race class and gender hierarchy come across as very idealized and positive. And so women's suffrage leaders were seen very much at odds with that Lost Cause culture that was being celebrated. So we've been talking, we we mentioned how Black women were also involved in the suffrage movement, but could you talk a little bit more about Black women in Georgia specifically and in the South? Because of course, at this time period, the early after post-Civil War, late 1800s, early 1900s, the South is still in the Jim Crow era where there is racial segregation and you know, the Ku Klux Klan is still very much terrorizing Black communities and especially trying to intimidate Black men who are voting. So how is that going to be for Black women who want to have the vote and are advocating for, well, not just to have the vote, but also for racial equality? So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that movement was in Georgia? Sure. And and I can't emphasize enough the extent to which, as you point out, it is crucial to place African-American women's contributions within the rise of the Jim Crow South, the strictly segregated South. And so it's during the Jim Crow era, 1890s into the early 20th century. It's during this time that we see white supremacists throughout the South working to disfranchise, take away voting rights of Black men. And African-American women are going to respond to this. Some suffragists, including those like Mary Church Terrell, uh, Gertrude Bustle Moselle, and Adela Hunt Logan in particular, are going to be very vocal in calling for the enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which are under attack during this time. But they're also going to campaign for the enfranchisement of Black women. But it's going to be a tough battle for them because I want to emphasize that Black women were not welcome within either regional but even national suffrage organizations. 
In fact, many national women's organizations, including NASA, the largest one that we've talked about, had on the books that regional chapters had the option to reject Black women. And why was this the case? Well, NASA was pretty crafty. They knew that in order for organizations to gain new support from Southern states, and we're referring to white women here, NASA realized that they needed as many allies as possible. And white women from the South are one such group that NASA was courting, meaning that NASA was afraid that if Black women were welcome to join uh, the organizations, that that would really limit the number of white women from the South who would join. That said, uh, despite that kind of rejection, African-American women do support NASA. Why is that? Well, for African-American women, support of NASA efforts was seen as a further step and necessary step toward re-enfranchisement for Black men, as well as enfranchisement for themselves. So that's I really got to give them a round of applause there for being supportive of NASA and its efforts, even when they are can be excluded. So the question then arises, do Black women form their own suffrage organizations? It's going to happen at least to a limited extent. So, for example, in 1896, several African-American women's organizations are going to form a broader organization called the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW in Washington, DC. But in terms of my own research, and I am not a a black women's suffrage expert, uh, but from what I know, their organizations that are specifically devoted to suffrage are not particularly organized. It's not surprising they have some more pressing concerns, for example, the fight to rid society of lynching and, you know, fighting against Jim Crow society and whatnot. And I think Black women are just fed up with the fact that their place in Southern society has actually deteriorated in the late, late 18th and early 19th centuries. Want to make it crystal clear that Essentially, by the first decade of the 20th century, we have very little Black male suffrage. By, you know, 1910 or so, only a few African-American men have retained voting rights at the state level. For example, we're going to see the institution of poll taxes, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses, all of which are stripping Black men of voting rights. Um, In addition to that, the 14th and 15th Amendments have been the target of repeated efforts at repeal in the 1900s and into the 1910s. And many African-Americans, many of whom are Black women, are recognizing that the 19th Amendment is erected atop the ruins of the 14th and 15th Amendments. And so between 1900 and the 1920s, African-American women suffragists were determined to hold the nation accountable really first for the 14th and 15th Amendments before they could even dream about the 19th Amendment and and even Black women's suffrage becoming a reality. So that's going almost into the civil rights movement at that point is when that, I guess, really becomes a, a fulfillment of their movement's going all the way back 
to, well, the early 1900s, it's finally, it, it takes much longer for them to fulfill those, I guess, at that point, dreams, but it does become reality. Uh, exactly. Later. It's going to be between the 1940s and 1960s, depending where you lived before, you know, true voting rights are going to be even possible for the African-American community. So we were talking about the the passage of the 19th Amendment. And of course, that doesn't mean much for Black women who are still fighting Jim Crow, specifically in the South. But also that didn't, I I was surprised to learn as, as I was researching that that didn't even mean suffrage for all white women because women in Georgia actually still had trouble voting even after the 19th Amendment was ratified in the nation. Of course, Georgia did not specifically ratify that until much later, as you pointed out. So can you give us a little bit of context about that? Yeah, and and I just want to add to something you said there, Marie, that we need to actually understand the exact wording of the 19th Amendment Um, I'm going to quote this verbatim. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Okay, that end quote. So this is excluding Native Americans. This is excluding Asian Americans. This is excluding women in U.S. territories, all groups that had not yet been granted American citizenship status. So if you were Native American in Georgia, if you were Asian American, uh, you were not going to have voting rights. Black women, as as we sort of underscored, are going to have those voting rights on paper, but practically often could not vote because of things like we've talked about, poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and even the all-white primary And it's really going to take until the United States Congress passes the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that many of these exclusions were finally eliminated for good. But you're right that even white women are going to have difficulty voting at least in the first couple years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Because the Georgia Assembly is going to tack on this odd requirement that women have to be, or that anyone, but they're really targeting women, have to be registered to vote six months before an election. And so this was a way for the state of Georgia to ensure that white women in particular would not be participating for example, in the 1920 presidential election. So it's really not going to be until 1922 when we have our midterm elections that white women are going to be voting in large numbers. And therefore, I guess the first presidential election that women in Georgia, white women in Georgia could vote in was the 1924 election. Exactly. And then, of course, it would be much later for all of the other groups that we mentioned that had either been denied citizenship or had been denied rights that had been essentially promised to them on paper. Mm-hmm. And so I know, I know some of this has been a little on the dark side. And so I want to end with a little bit of a more uplifting vibe. Women today now possess more political agency than they ever have. Now, a hundred years after the country passed the 19th amendment, There are 144 voting women in Congress, 
the most there ever have been. And so counting both the House of Representatives and the Senate, so 144 out of a total 539 seats, that 27% of those seats are held by women. And so this represents a 50% increase of those who served even just a decade ago. So we're seeing quite a change even in recent years, Uh, though that's more at the national level. I want to stress that here in Georgia, uh, female politicians are still fairly far and few between if we're looking at at a more local level. In recent years, only six of the state's 29 cities with populations of more than 30,000 people have women serving as mayor, and only one of Georgia's five most populous counties has a woman chair. So even 100 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, women in sort of the local and state level in Georgia are very much underrepresented. I think that that's incredibly interesting because you can kind of see the the legacy of the the suffrage movement and also, I guess, the anti-suffrage movement. Exactly. Those anti-suffrage arguments that we've identified during this podcast, I think, are sort of subliminally still playing a role today and explains why there is maybe at least among a fair chunk of Georgia's population discomfort with the idea of women leadership, women politicians. Do you have any final thoughts, perhaps? I know you gave a, a, a very nice summary just, just a few minutes ago, but um, I, I don't know. Any other ending thoughts? I think I'm all talked out for today. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insight into this incredibly interesting and a very large topic. We, we covered a lot of ground today, all of the United States, North, East, West, South. And it was very interesting to kind of contrast and compare those and learn a little bit more about the South specifically, as I think a lot of times the South kind of gets ignored when talking about the suffrage movement, because there wasn't a whole lot of pro-suffrage movement in the South. There was a lot of anti-suffrage movement, which people don't really talk about because they didn't win. They didn't end up being successful in their their cause of anti-suffrage. But I think the legacy of them, as we were talking about, can still be seen today, which is really interesting to kind of dissect and see the, the legacy of that as well. So thank you so much for, for being with us today. And thank you again for inviting me. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.